0: Get out your yoga mat or throw out your yoga mat because it's time for sermons from the mat. Irreverent, honest, inspiring stories from yours truly, Samantha Wilde. Just your ordinary book writing, sermon preaching, yoga teaching, spiritual mentoring, mother, five children. Now, if I can only remember what I want to say, this is going to be really good. Welcome back to the podcast. We are together again, and that's such a wonderful thing. I'm so happy to be with you. And I want to tell you that if you're anything like me, you have read or seen the words of Rumi's poetry everywhere, on T-shirts, on shirts, on bumper stickers, on mugs. And one of the most famous of all Rumi's lines, often quoted, are the lines, Out beyond wrongdoing and doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Now I'm paraphrasing, I'm not actually reading that, and of course in various translations there's subtle differences. But I'm gonna share with you a story today called, Has Anyone Ever Been to Rumi's Field? So I want you to know that I grew up practicing yoga in my parents' basement. This was long before yoga was popular, and I never took a class until I was a teenager. And then by the time I took my second class, I was probably about 16 years old, and I took that class in a health club. The same teacher who instructed my first class also taught this second one because she was the only teacher on Nantucket Island and she's still my teacher and she's a brilliant teacher. But this class that I took when I was about 16 or so, I can't remember much about it, but I don't remember that we moved very much. I think we breathed really noisily and when I left, I had the lingering feeling that engaging in such a practice would never improve my popularity. That was a long time ago. That was before sticky mats, before cool people did yoga. That was before people knew what yoga was. And if you're old enough, you can probably recall those days when yoga had an association with the Hare Krishnas and people thought it consisted of old bearded, half-naked men doing contortions. And more importantly, they thought it was weird. So I didn't go back for another class, not right away, because what happened in that class, it didn't connect with what I'd been doing in my parents' basement and been practicing for years. That teacher didn't offer me a 28-day exercise plan like Richard Hittleman did, and if you haven't heard my podcast about that book, you can go back. It's the second podcast about thin thighs in 30 days. Anyway, those two things didn't line up for me. What I had already been practicing as yoga and what was happening in this class. Now, when I tell my students that for more than a decade of yoga practice, I didn't bother to know the name of a posture or to acquire a sticky mat, they look at me funny. For a great majority of 21st century yoga practitioners, yoga doesn't even exist outside of the classroom or the DVD or the yoga mat. Separate from some kind of timed practice or paid class or instructional video or absent any group grooviness or communal collective vibe, and completely devoid of trendiness of any kind, I did the stuff. And this is not better than how others came to yoga, but it is different. I don't know how to describe the depth of my connection with the movement of the postures. Again, these poses, they didn't have names. When I found it, they didn't belong to anybody. They didn't belong to a leader or a teacher or a guru or a school of yoga. They didn't belong to a style or a practice. The yoga I practiced did not have a name, and it didn't go in search of one either. Over many years, I did something I grew to love. I made shapes with my form, and they took up residence on the inside of me. I developed a vocabulary of breathing movement in a tongue no one else has ever spoken. Even all these years later, even teaching yoga and sharing it and learning about it and hearing it and studying it, on the inside of me, no words exist for what occurs. Yoga, which expresses through poses a language of the body, ultimately speaks the language of the spirit. This language has no words, but it is in fact a very alive language. During the years of my early adulthood, my yoga life moved from the small world of my parents' basement and that slim volume of Hittleman's into the larger world of burgeoning yoga culture. So I went from a more casual practice that wove through the hours of my day into a concise, dedicated daily practice that had, among other things, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And part of this radical shift included the release of the myopic concern over my thighs, The new direction of my attention, it wasn't so horribly self-obsessed. In fact, it had to do with the greatest, most powerful force in the world, love. But not the magical roomy kind of spiritual love. No, I had much more interest in the quite human and do I look good in this outfit kind of love. It's not an overstatement to say that during this time, no question burned more deeply within me than this one. Do you love me? During the years that followed, when I dived headlong into the great melting pot of American yoga, I kept an animated account of all my daily activities, which some would call a journal. I would call it the next best novel. Despite the fact that I often wrote four or five pages in a day, I rarely mentioned yoga. Such a shocking finding can point only to one truth. Yoga mattered to me, but something else mattered much, much more so i'm going to summarize for you my journals from 1995 to 2005. here it is i am so in love i am sick with love who should i love why did he leave what's wrong with me and then repeat Except it's slightly more interesting because I mention people, major plot points, and include sex scenes, and naturally those pages in my journal are spotted with tear stains. Oh gosh, I wish I'd possessed the maturity then that I do now. These days, my journal reads like this. I love myself. Ohm. What should I cook for dinner? I accept myself and my thighs, om shanti, I'm really tired, thank God for chocolate, I forgive myself for all my mistakes, when is the Pope coming to visit me? But more seriously, 20 years ago I didn't bother to write the story of my unfolding yogic lifestyle because I didn't know I was having a yogic lifestyle. I couldn't put myself on Instagram doing an advanced pose. Instagram did not exist. And the self-interest and self-reflective aspect of the current yoga scene, it just wasn't around. It was not there. Yoga was private and it belonged to the practitioner. The class I originally took at the gym, that second ever bought and paid for yoga class, it occurred in a small carpeted upstairs room, tucked away behind the main office, hidden away out of sight a bit like an ashamed dog who can't stop weeing everywhere. By the time I took my third yoga class, the class took place in the aerobics room. And this is a great example of how yoga was progressing on the larger scene, out of the closet and into the aerobics room. At that class in the aerobics room, I took my place in a crowded room on a variety of mat that likely doesn't exist any longer except for an impoverished YMCA. Some of you will remember these mats because they never fully unrolled and they felt really sticky and, and very spongy. And I have to say, when I first wrote this, I said that they feel sticky and spongy like your grandmother's bottom. And when I went back to read this over, I thought... I hope that none of us have touched our grandmother's bottom to know what that feels like. I certainly haven't. So I have I have removed that line from this piece. But at any rate, you know, if you have felt these yoga mats, exactly what I'm talking about. And they were never big enough either. You'd lie on them and your hands and legs and maybe your head was even off of it. When I went to this third class in the aerobics room on that spongy yoga mat, the same teacher, still the only teacher on the island, led us through some vigorous sun salutations. Up and down I went, up and down, and for every breath those around me took, I required two or three. I followed to the left and the right, one foot forward, then another, and it was nothing like the yoga I practiced at home, not on the outside. When I finished, my whole body shook like a terrified chicken staring into the eyes of a hawk, except I wasn't afraid. I was alive. I left barely able to walk up the stairs and I wanted more, more, more. Now, if you consider this a masochistic stance, you clearly haven't read my early journals because masochism is not my thing. Despite more than 50 hours of unmedicated childbirth, I firmly believe when it comes to pain, run away. Besides, I didn't feel pain after that class. I felt exhausted and exhilarated at the same time. For the first time, a yoga class created inside of me the feelings I'd had doing yoga all along. The sense of having lost myself to something better mirrored the yoga I'd known on my own. In those first two classes I took, I hadn't been able to think of anything else beside myself because the quiet made me feel so self-conscious, and the focused, overachieving breathing left me in a quagmire of self-judgment. You know those first two classes they shined an ugly spotlight in my direction and inside of them I had felt inadequate and weird you know more aware of myself and my imperfections and my thighs than I ever had been in this third class in the aerobics room I barely knew I existed I went somewhere else I didn't do yoga I yogad and thus a true love affair began One might say it was my love affair with yoga, but really, how could that be true? Because yoga isn't a thing. It's not a person or a place or a noun. It was actually my love affair with my higher self. Let's call her Barbie with God. Let's call him Ken. You know, that really keeps it fair. It was my love affair with oneness itself. It would take me another 15 years to get that this was the real love of my life. But even then. It was the beginning of this most important relationship. The truest, best, deepest, highest, grandest, most thigh-embracing amorous adventure began right there. So it took a while to flower and open, but seeds aren't flowers right away after all. For a long, long time, they hang out in the dark. Now this love affair, it always felt intimate to me and personal and it continued to exist outside of language, despite the fact that at that point I'd taken three yoga classes. I still didn't relate to a tradition or a line of yoga coming out of the East through one of the grandfathers of the modern yoga movement. When I did finally apply for my teacher training, yoga teacher training at Kripalu, I asked my New Haven teacher what kind of yoga we practiced so I could write it down in the little box where they asked that question. Oh, she said to me, you know, we do tree pose and triangle pose, that kind of stuff. Well, I knew this was not the answer the Kripalu School of Yoga was looking for. Back then, there were not so many schools of yoga as there are today, but there certainly were schools of yoga, and nothing beats the power of the trademark. You can witness this mad infatuation with the mini TM, that little trademark symbol, in any yoga catalog you observe the yoga community isn't unique in their passionate embrace of the trademark, but they're also resoundingly not immune. At the inception of my yoga career, if I'd had the interest and was writing in that little line on my application, I could have gone back to one of the four or five named styles of American yoga, a ashtanga, integral, kundalini. Those spring to my mind right now. And they existed there when I was flying to krapalu and maybe Bikram, although I'm not quite sure. But today the yoga brands exist in such numbers that I actually got carpal tunnel trying to write them all down. And I didn't get anywhere near the total amount of them. But here's a sampling. Rina yoga, Embody yoga, Anyasara yoga, Asheya yoga, Yantra yoga, Kulu flow, five element yoga, Divine Sleep Yoga Nidra, Tri Yoga, Pranakriya Yoga, Life Force Yoga, Afro Flow Yoga, Power Core Yoga, Pranadanda Yoga, Pranavinyasa Yoga, Yoga Tune Up, Forest Yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, Yoga Align, Let Your Yoga Dance, Power Yoga, Baptiste Yoga, Hot Yoga, Yin Yoga, Akra Yoga, Jiva Mukti, Arial Yoga, Prenatal Yoga, Fat Thigh Yoga, ah, all of the above. Everything I just said are actual styles of yoga, many registered by trademark except for one. Could you hear it? Did you hear the one which was not like the others? You know, if you made a visual depiction of yoga's metamorphosis over the past three decades, it would look remarkably like a family tree, okay, multiplying and spreading out in all directions. And like anyone who loves yoga, I think this is a good thing. But why so many different kinds? Each kind has its own laws or rules, alignment instructions and breathing direction. Never was the effect of such prolific branding of yoga styles made clearer to me than one day when I was teaching a class and I asked everybody to come into downward facing dog. And one student said to me, which downward dog do you want me to do? Well, she wasn't happy when she said it either. So we stopped. We had a little conversation about this. What she meant was that different teachers had different expectations about Downward Dog. So what kind did I demand in my classes? So I probably said something like, do the Downward Dog that brings you joy. Or maybe I said, do the Downward Dog as I instruct it. Not because it's the right way, but because if you do as I instruct it, that means you're listening and here in the moment. Honestly, I could understand her frustration. If there's only one right way to do a certain pose, it creates pressure a widely unnecessary pressure. During my yoga teacher training, this is decades ago, going back there, I met a woman who had practiced yoga for more than 30 years. And man, she was amazing. She could do incredible things with her body. She had crazy strength, extreme flexibility, and until the day she arrived at Kripalu, she hadn't taken a single yoga class. What she had was a home practice She was on her way to becoming a yoga teacher, and she had literally never been in a yoga class. I love this woman. I still love her. And I felt a kinship with her back to the deep roots of a yoga tree that doesn't belong to anyone. It's not a problem to have many flavors of ice cream. It's not a problem to have many schools of yoga. But it gets confusing because the human mind likes to create hierarchy and judgment and rightness and competitiveness. I spoke with a student concerned that a certain style of yoga was no longer, quote, pure. Certain teachers use that style and its name, but didn't follow the form as my student had originally understood it. And the question was, where is the pure form of this yoga? What I'm asking is, is there any pure form of yoga anywhere? Gosh, we ask those same questions inside of denominational churches, and you can find so many varieties of churches, can't you? The buildings are different, the songs are different, the practices are different, the politics are different. And you can find whatever you want. If you're looking for a church, you can find one with a rock band or an organ, a politically left church or politically right church, one that gives you new friends and one that lets you stay anonymous. And all the time, from all directions, people ask, which is the true church? What is the true, pure way? Does that make you think at all of the issues of race and the generations that have fervently and frighteningly sought to find the, quote, pure race? This is not merely the purity of not being a person of color, as we get it in our racism. It is also the tremendous misconception that any one person can have pure lines, racially or ethnically. When I bring up this matter of purity, our skin crawls. Does yours? Mine does. And we certainly don't want to align ourselves with the racism that undergirds such a confused and violating premise that one person can be pure and that another one is not. So what is the pure form of yoga? What is the pure form of Christianity? What is the pure form of Judaism? What is the pure race? Aren't these all dead-end questions? And don't they all betray A kind of ignorance? The truth about yoga poses is actually not clear. Was there a first person making up the poses? We don't have them brought to us from millennia ago. In Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there's no instruction on the physical postures other than that they're steady. comfortable. It's very limited what we have. So whether we assume that an ancient monk in a cave got an inspiration about them, or a collective group of people wrote them down, or one big yoga guru had a little marketing plan for sharing yoga with the West, it doesn't really matter. Because is there a pure form of yoga fails? As a question, it's the cat running after its tail in circles. In seminary, we read the very special red letter Bible with the sentences most likely to have been literally spoken by Jesus and the events most likely to have literally happened highlighted in red. Well, what happens if your favorite scripture, something you've built your life on, wasn't highlighted in red? What then? You know, the actual number of yoga styles is infinite because every individual person does in fact have her own style. The way the yoga comes out physically in form or mentally through thought or spiritually through inspiration is unique to each particular individual. One finds truth in the vigor, one finds truth in the slowness, one finds truth in the alignment, but none of those are absolute truth. They're just inner truth. It's cataclysmic to decide that the method that works for us is the pure yoga or the right yoga, because where does that leave everyone else? Attachment to the form creates a material dependence when what yoga longs to give us is a freedom from material attachments. Imagine someone saying to you, I cannot practice yoga without my mat. Well, of course you can practice without a mat. You can also practice without an arm. I had a wonderful student with only one. You can also practice without the use of any limbs. I've had a few students paralyzed from the neck down. You know, honestly, if a brand or method of yoga serves you, that's wonderful. If it makes you feel like you belong to a certain tribe, that's good. But for every tribal association, we create an us-them dynamic. Yoga, the force of unification, seeks to release the artificial boundaries, whoever makes them, however they are made. For me, the person of Jesus and the expression of the Christ energy does the same thing. It is here to break the boundaries, not to reinforce them. This power does not draw lines in the sand. This power erases them. This power doesn't set up factions, but brings together all to sit at the same table. Nobody has the trademark on the path to God, and nobody gets to guard those pearly gates to enlightenment. Is this yoga That question can't be answered by the experts or the brand makers, but by the soul, by the soul who practices. Is this practice bringing me closer to union with the great I am? That's the question. And if it is, then it is yoga. Is it bringing me farther away? Well, if it is, then it's probably not yoga. Outside of the world of names and brands, trademarks and schools, styles and dogmas, outside of the world of form and alignment, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Aren't we all a little closer to enlightenment now? Oh, well, something like that. I'm delighted I got to spend this time with you, so let's stay connected. Don't forget to find me at thesamanthawild.com. You can find me on Instagram at thesamanthawild, on Facebook at author samanthawild, and probably you could find me a lot in my backyard hanging out with the kids and the goats. So let's stay in touch. Wasn't it wonderful that we did all this and didn't have to get out of our pajamas?